a green blob or a white blob or a brown blob, which is sort of your, your protein, your veggie and your, your potato or something like that. So that's sort of where I sort of think we have to do something about it. Welcome to Nourishing Matters to Chew On. I'm Anthea Fawcett. Join me on a journey across our food and agricultural landscapes as I speak with inspiring people who are tackling parts of the wicked puzzle to enable change toward a healthier, more sustainable, fair and resilient food system and environment. I acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which this podcast is recorded throughout Australia and recognise their continuing connections to land, water and culture. I acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Being able to choose from and enjoy a wide range of tasty, interesting foods, whether as snacks or meals shared with friends and family, is something most of us take for granted. But for a growing number of Australians, that everyday pleasure can be really hard to access and to enjoy, particularly for older Australians who experience swallowing difficulties. I'm speaking with Dr. Artie Tobin and Dr. Jean Bielan, researchers with CSIRO, who are doing really exciting, important work to develop more delicious and nutritious foods for people who suffer from swallowing challenges, also known as dysphagia. Artie, it's such a pleasure to, to speak with you again and welcome, Jana. So good to meet you. Thank you both for your time today. Hi, Anthea. How are you? Very well. Good to meet you. Yeah, it's lovely, lovely to lovely to meet you too. To lead us in, could, 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 would each of you like to introduce yourselves to our to our listeners? Uh, tell us what your roles are with CSIRO and the focus or the name of the dysphagia research projects that you're working on together. I'll go first. So, Ahi Tobin, I am a uh, research scientist first and foremost. Um, I'm also focus area leader for consumer uh, area. And I'm also a work package leader in, for animal protein in our feature protein mission. I suppose I've been working in the dysphagia play area for about 20 plus years. And um, it's basically, we've been trying to sort of develop products would help people in aged care homes uh, to just, you know, make the lives of the residents uh, better. So we worked on this um, mm-hmm. a future science platform project in which we looked at personalized nutrition. So it was looking at the work that Jana and I did on developing products, but it also included 3D printing of foods, and it also included computational modeling, so doing like a virtual model of the mouth and the swallow process, so we can do some simulation studies. So it encompassed a lot of different areas. Oh, my goodness. And Jana? Yeah, so my name is Jana Belen. I am a nutrition scientist and also a, a consumer scientist. I'm Jana Bela. I'm a nutrition scientist with a consumer science and sensory science background. And I worked with RT on the project to develop uh, foods for dysphagia sufferers and uh, also worked on Cater with Care, which was also foods for the elderly dabbled a bit in sensory and uh, my background and my PhD was um, in uh, developing protein enriched foods for the elderly um, and I did this in collaboration with the industry uh, hospitals and nursing homes and um, really tried to take an all yeah a, a long like a, a client's kind of driven food production um, or development strategy so we looked at uh, who are the people that were trying to make these foods for what are they doing at the moment what do they want oh fabulous thank you so before we dig into talk in a bit more nitty-gritty about your research can you lead us in and describe or break down into its parts what dysphagia is and how it impacts on people 
Artie, would you like to perhaps describe the key characteristics or processes that characterise this condition? Dysphagia is just a generic term that's used to describe any kind of swallowing disorder. So if you have difficulty from taking anything from your mouth into your esophagus, so you're not, you are unable to sort of swallow, that is called uh, dysphagia. And dysphagia can be caused by a whole myriad of, of reasons. Mm -hmm. But in, in generically, it is just an inability to take the food from the mouth into your esophagus to get it into your stomach. So it could be that you don't have teeth, uh, it could be that you, your, 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 your valve that kind of blocks your airways while you swallow is not working really well. You have dry mouth. It could be a whole lot of, lot of reasons uh, that the procedure is caused. Yeah. Right. And so is it, would you, within that generic uh, capture, would, would that take in a lot of the conditions that people who tube feed commonly also have? Or is it quite distinct from tube feeding? No, I think tube feeding is quite distinct. In tube feeding, it goes directly into the stomach. In this case, we are trying to get them to eat the food themselves, but we sort of changing the, the texture of the food or how the food is presented to them. So it makes that process of swallow easier for them. So essentially, we take away the chewing phase, like when for people with dysphagia, the food is either pureed or minced, so the particle size is broken down. So essentially, we're removing the chewing phase of the process. So the only thing they have to do is swallow. And um, when you swallow, you realize there's like quite a few muscles that are needed. You need a bit of suction happening to push the food to the back of the throat. So it's quite a complex process swallowing. Mm -hmm. and, and what does dysphagia you know, mean for quality of life and enjoyment of food. Jana, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail there in your introduction as well. It's um, eating is for most of us a very enjoyable um, occasion of the day and we look forward to it. But for people with dysphagia, it can become a life-threatening uh, activity. So if you can choke on your food or um, suffer from uh, aspiration, um, you can even die from uh, swallowing something the wrong way. That's uh, one thing um, to look at. But then there's also the issues that we see with foods for dysphagia sufferers. It's usually the complaints are around sensory properties of the food. So people enjoy eating it less because there's a lack of flavor and a lack of texture and, and such. So that's what we're trying to improve. Mm, so there's sort of like a double whammy there, isn't there? it's difficult so you actually become fearful of it so that possibly exacerbates the difficulties in swallowing plus what you've got to swallow isn't that nice <laughs> it's exactly <laughs> yeah mm. and and so i just wanted to add it also sort of sometimes leads to social isolation as well so if you normally if you're yeah. eating this food and you're constantly coughing and that you tend to just want to sit by yourself to eat because it's embarrassing for you during mealtime. Yeah. So then, you know, mealtime so in HPS setting where everyone would sit together and eat, where you feel a bit embarrassed, so you might just sit by yourself and, and you know, eat because you, you don't want to be constantly coughing and stuff. So it leads to, you know, this kind of stuff as well. And if you're unable to eat enough food or swallow enough liquids, then you can suffer from malnutrition and dehydration is a real problem with people that have dysphagia. Oh gosh, so nutrition health related problems and also the social isolation and mental health 
flow on. So yeah, so it's a huge thing you're tackling. Bravo, both of you. So who are the sorts of people or demographics in our community who most commonly suffer or, or experience the condition? I suppose yeah, maybe Yana Yuga. Mostly, I would say, um, our older people in the in society, lots of um, people in age uh, or the number in aged care residents is rising as well. Yeah, we live longer, so you have more age aging related health effects, I guess, uh, and uh, that's tricky. Um, you also see a higher prevalence in people with uh, that suffered from a stroke or that have Alzheimer or dementia. So often lots of motor functions also decline due to those processes, which you need to actually prepare bolus in your mouth and swallow. Interestingly, uh, it's also is more prevalent in women than in men uh, across all age groups. That's interesting. Um, well, we've got a, a women-centered project here. That's great. <laughs> um, that, that's so interesting. Going further along that track, what is the outlook in terms of our population for whom dysphagia is or may become a big issue now and looking forward as our population ages? You, you've alluded to it, Jana, but uh, Artie, I know in one of the wonderful papers you sent through to me, there were some really interesting statistics about you know, trends in the ageing population and in the aged care sector. Would you just like to pull out a few pithy facts and figures for us in that regard, the outlook? Yeah. We do have, uh, you know, in the developed world, we do have an aging population. And in Australia, by, you know, 2050, about 25% of our population is going to be over the age of 65. So I think that, you know, as Jan alluded to, this is um, uh, swallowing disorders are quite prevalent in the elderly. So if you have an aging population, you, you can sort of predict that going in the future, uh, dysphagia-related problems will get bigger and bigger. There's some, the, the statistics around how many people sort of suffer, it sort of varies all over the place. Literature says anywhere between 10 to 70% of the residents in aged care suffer from dysphagia, whereas when we did our research, which we're going to talk about later, we found that between 10 to 40% of the population uh, needed some kind of you know, texture-modified food because they had some level of um, swallowing difficulty. So that's sort of what we are looking at. And it's, like I said, the aging population, we expect the numbers to get higher, not lower. And that 10 to 40% figure that you found, was that just aged care centres or is that across the population? No, we only looked at aged care because we kind of had a bigger sector and because a lot of the elderly sort of were in that sort of a big population was in residential aged care and it's easier for us to collect the data from that. Of course. That's why our research is based on that. So let's talk about your research now. Artie, can you um, sort of lead us in and tell us about the current dysphagia research program, what it's all about and how you're going about it? From what, I, from, from what I've read, your research is really, you know, it's very unique and it's tackling the health, taste and, nutri and nutrition challenges on a range of fronts to improve food products and dietary options. Would you like to paint a picture and just elaborate what your current research program is all about? So I suppose the current research program is sort of based on the work we've just sort of completed. So we had a, um, a future science platform project. So in CSIRO, future science platform is where CSIRO puts a strategic investment into projects and they sort of look at what are the science and innovation we're going to need in the future that would you know, benefit the population or benefit the country. So we had predicted you know, with the aging population, this is an area we should look at. So that's sort of where we sort of looked at, all right, um, dysphagia is a problem. There's issue with texture, there's issue with flavor. 
um, the look of the, the, the visual appearance of the product and things like that. So at that point, we also brought in uh, 3D printing of foods as well, or molding of foods to make it look. So, you know, you can mince it, you know, a carrot and then shape it into a carrot. So there's a visual appeal of the food. And then we also did an area of research which is around computational modeling. So computational modeling is doing like a virtual model. And instead of then running trials with consumers as such, you do the simulations on the computer, which will tell you that if you change an aspect uh, characteristic of the food, what impact it will have on the swallow side. So those were sort of the areas we were looking at. So where we are with that sort of um, the research current work is around um, we are continuing to develop the, the food. So we've developed some foods, we've taken them and tested them in aged care homes. So in that space, we are looking at getting companies on board to take, take this on. It's a very, aged care is a very price sensitive um, industry. So, you know, doing it at a price point where they are able to buy and see the benefit of it, that's sort of something that, you know, is, is an issue. We are, are continuing to work in the area of 3D printing. And I think Jana can talk a little bit more about that. And we also have recently hired a postdoc who's gonna come in and continue to work in this developing these computational modeling. So we will look at, you know, the flow behavior of the food and then relate that, use that data to optimize our model that already exists. So yeah, we continue to work in this area because we believe that with the growing population, aging population, this is gonna be an area that we need the science to help. And at the end of the day, it helps the quality of life of the, you know, the consumer, the resident. And, and Jana, you're clearly working closely with Artie and, and Artie's alluded to you doing work around the um, 3D printing and the attractiveness and the sensory characteristics. Would you like to just add, add in, chip in anything further at, at that helicopter description level? Sure. Uh, we are also looking at actually a 3D printing from a responsible innovation perspective. So we are um, also looking at how can we, um, all the work that we do in CSIRO, uh, we wanted to have impact and how are we progressing technologies in the most responsible way so that it has um, a larger social acceptability and therefore also will be used uh, in our society. So that's what I'm also working on with 3D uh, printing of food. Uh, and we really see that there is potential in this space uh, for, care for the aged care sector as well. What, what personally drew you each specifically to this very particular area of research? Well, I can uh, maybe for myself, I, I mean, I have a really good relationship with my grandparents and I don't know, some something about the elderly attracts me to them. I, I love hearing their sto life stories and um, yeah, learn from them. And I feel it's, I feel very sad when I think about it, that they've worked so hard their whole life and took care of so many people. And then in the end, like the last years of their life, there's um, they lose already so much independence and such. And then losing the enjoyment of eating your foods. Um, yeah, I find that very uh, heartbreaking. And I would love to um, yeah, help um, to improve the quality of the food that we're offering our elderly people and um, so that they enjoy every mouthful, I would say. Yeah, and enjoy their time with friends and family and the time they have left. That's so beautiful. Yeah, thank you for that, Jana. Artie, do you want to comment on this? Yeah, look, my my journey into dysphagia, I hadn't even heard the word until I had gone to this breakfast meeting and uh, 
met the uh, the kitchen manager at the time. His name was Tony Gagan. He used to work for RSLC at Queensland. And uh, he sort of mentioned, you know, when he heard that I was working with meat products and he said, can you do something for people with dysphagia? And I said, what is dysphagia? So he explained that to me. And he was saying that, you know, mm -hmm. as people get older, they need more protein and the types of protein HKA can buy is cheaper cuts. If they're not cooked properly, then they can't eat it. And usually meat is left on the plate because the elderly can't chew it, even if you do have the teeth and all that. So that's sort of where my journey began. And he said, are you able to help me develop this product? So I was basically um, started doing some, use some of my knowledge on restructured products and started developing these products with him at the time. And that's where my interest came in. And then UQ got the grant to an ARC linkage grant around dysphagia. Um, and developing products, sexual modified food for people with dysphagia, then they approached me to be a PhD student. So when I went in and became a PhD student, I even got more involved because that, that made me go in and take products into people, you know, uh, that had dysphagia and seeing what they were eating. And like Yana was saying, it is quite heartbreaking when you sort of serve the food and they, you know, you just see these scoops of food on your plate and it doesn't look like you know, it's a green blob or a... doesn't look like food. Yeah, it looks like a, you know, a, a green blob or a white blob or a brown blob, which is sort of your, your protein, your veggie and your, your potato or something like that. So that's sort of where I sort of said, we have to do something about it. And that was sort of after my PhD was also where I was really pushing this area within CSIRO. There was interest from before, but then sort of got like-minded people like, you know, Yana, who was working in that space and was passionate about it kind of all got together and said, all right, let's use our collective knowledge in developing, you know, products uh, that would help the lives of our ageing uh, consumers. Your work with Dan Ying and other, other colleagues in the protein, uh, future protein mission around getting all these incredible plant and animal-based uh, protein powders to really intensify people who are vulnerable on the proteins front's ability to get more protein in an easy way. So it's really exciting, connected stuff you're doing. So dysphagia, am I pronouncing it correctly? Dysphagia? We call it dysphagia, but it just depends. It's called dysphagia as well. It's, it's up to you. Different people say it differently. I've always called it dysphagia. Okay. Dysphagia limits people's eating choices. So can you paint a picture of what sorts of foods are currently most commonly offered to people with dysphagia? And you just did that with the image of the, the blobs <laughs> of different colours. Um, and I think we can all sort of envisage that if ever if any of us have been in hospital and had a fairly standard hospital meal, we know what the blob, the blob not so attractive food can look like. But imagine facing that every day. Would you like to elaborate on that in terms of you know, the limitations, the real challenges in what's commonly made available to people with dysphagia at the moment? So it is, um, it is common practice to take your normal food and do some size reduction, like I said in my intro, that you take away the chewing phase. So it's either gone and they are minced or pureed. So it just depends. There are guidelines around this as well. So we've got these um, ITSI guidelines. So there are uh, international guidelines now around the International Dysphagia Diet Standardization Initiative. It's called ITSI. And that's sort of, um, they, they follow that. And so you either mince the product or you puree the product and then you present it to the, to the person. The problem with that is that if you 
find puree something, you always have to add a little bit of liquid of some sort to kind of help puree it. And by doing that, you are diluting the nutrient density of that food. And also the flavor of it. Exactly, exactly. And so what happens is that they, if they're only consuming that 100 grams of food, you want that food to be as nutritionally, nutritionally dense as possible and as tasty as possible so they will eat that whole 100 grams. Yeah. The problem at the moment is also that, you know, some of this food is prepared in advance and then it's chilled and then it's reheated and it's presented to them like reheated and presented. So sometimes things like with meat, you can get this um, oxidative rancidity thing happening, which gives you a bit of that warmed over flavor is what we call in the industry. And that it sort of gives you that slightly fishy flavor. I think sometimes you've got your roast chicken or roast meat and you eat it the next day and eat it. It doesn't taste the same. And that's what it is. So it has that flavor to it as well. So those are the kind of things we're trying to change in here to sort of say, okay, how do we design these products so that when it's presented to the resident or consumer, that it does taste really good, looks really good, you know, and that they will, and it's nutritionally dense and sound that they will then consume what's put in front of them. So those are the type of things are a real challenge because you might do a texture when it's cold, it's right, but you don't give them the food when it's cold. Once you reheat the food, as you know, the viscosity changes, the texture of the food and sort of it starts to melt. And then even if you give them in these little blobs, they try to kind of start spreading and they merge into each other. And that just doesn't look very appealing. We always say we eat with our eyes, right? If the food looks good, mm. you want to eat it. So this is the presentation of the food. Mm. Apart from everything else I've said, the visual appeal is really quite important because you wouldn't want to take your first spoonful or mouthful, I should say, if it doesn't look appealing. Mm. Oh, fascinating. And um, I, think, I think you've both mentioned some of the key uh, things you found in your surveys and conversations with people that what people most want changed or improved are things like poor appearance, lack of flavor, uh, less blandness. Um, Yana's talk, you know, spoken about making it nutrient dense and flavorsome. And the problem with inconsistent textures, Artie, you've just spoken about hot and cold and the viscosity and so on. What about for the people working in these um, aged care centers, preparing the food and doing their best, of course, in a really challenging environment? What are some of the challenges for the institutions and for this and for the staff who are uh, preparing food and make and, and serving it up what, what, what have you found in that regard well if I look at what we saw in the survey that uh, the staff from aged care um, in, uh, facilities uh, mentioned themselves was that uh, the big one is that preparing texture mod modified foods is really time consuming people struggle with uh, a variety in recipes so they only have a handful of things or they like actual mixed recipes uh, and then reaching that desired texture or what they do is what Artie just said is they just have the regular meal uh, of uh, meat veggies and potato and um, they create three blobs kind of then there's also an issue of staff shortage to uh, make the products in the kitchen and staff training the costs of pre-made uh, texture modified foods is a biggie yeah that's that's 
that are the things that people seem to struggle with. Mm. So big, big opportunities for the sector and the people playing in the sector yeah, to help those people. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. So let's move on to some of the really good news, <laughs> the wonderful foods you're coming up with. What are the foods or the processes on the horizon that you've identified that can really help improve the picture to offer much more attractive, healthy foods and meals? Um, I, I know you're doing a lot of work around vegetable-based uh, alternative options and restructured steaks. Uh, are there others or would you like to just talk about those in a little more detail? I think if you look at those two, sort of you generically cover all of the meats and you generically sort of cover a lot of the, the, the vegetables. So in the in the meat space, we are sort of trying to pull the meat apart. So the, the, the issue is from the connective tissue and that in the meat, which is what they can't choose. So by mincing it, doing the size reduction, you take away that part of it, so then you kind of put it all back together. We believe that if you have have the product which is cooked and served to them straight away, then it negates that warmed over flavor side of the issue that I was saying, you get that oxidized flavor with cooked meat. So we are sort of trying to develop these products which are restructured so they can be put in a sauce or something and be served straight away. So they don't take a long time to cook. Normally, say, diced meat out of lower value cuts of meat, you need to kind of the gravy, like the like gravy meat something. You've got to cook it for a long time to get it to be tender, whereas we've sort of already made it tender by restructuring it. So you don't have to cook it in the sauce for very long. So you can, it's easy to kind of cook. We've also done them in sort of portions, that, and they're uh, frozen portions, so they can just take out and just take out what they need rather than you know having a lot of stuff to frustrate and things like that. And one of the things we really focused on the work we've done in the restructured steak side is that that the we're not adding too many ingredients in there to dilute the protein content. So when we are comparing it with some of the similar products they serve in aged care homes, uh, our protein levels in the meats are quite high. So we're not, we're not putting breadcrumbs and other things in there to bind it. Fillers. <laughs> Fillers, yeah. So we're trying to, we really focus on keeping the nutrient content as high as possible. And then when we come onto the vegetable side, what we try to do in the vegetables as well, we try to sort of also not add any liquid in the system. So we sort of process it in a novel way. So we don't need the liquid in, in processing it. So again, you keep the nutrient dense. And we try to play around with the particle size of the uh, of the veggies. So when you sort of puree or mince it, just playing around with different particle sizes. So where the the small particles can work as a lubricant for large particles rather than adding liquid as a lubricant. So sort of played around with the structure function side of things with our products to kind of make sure that we are maintaining that nutrient density. Plus also by not diluting it with other things like Jana said we are also not sort of impacting on the on the flavor we're trying to sort of keep it as good as possible and the other thing that's really quite important is for us our perspective is that the the product maintains even if you're going to be served with the ice cream scoop it's really quite important that the scoop maintains its shape on the plate that it doesn't flow so what we sort of technically call it like a yield stress so there's enough sort of strength in your scoop of food it can hold its own weight and it doesn't start spreading when you heat it or something so that when it's presented to them you still have that integrity integrity of your scoops of food and things like that so those are the kind of things we're playing on the science side to kind of make sure the 
the visual side is good, the flavor side is good, the nutrient side is good. And so that those are the kind of things we look in. Well, that's fascinating. And um, Artie, what you said then about um, with the restructured meats um, so that they can be uh, available to the aged care uh, kitchens and providers uh, in smaller portions so that, and they're kept fresher and, and they're actually not cooked until they're ready to serve. Is that was that was that a key point there? Whereas often it would other, otherwise it would be cooked and frozen and then reheated. But what you're saying is you're preparing it, mincing it, doing the clever scientific particulate size things to it. It's then cooled, frozen, but then it's actually only cooked just before it's served. Is that correct? That that's what we'd like our product to be. But then it needs to it needs to fit in with the different sort of serving systems in different aged care homes. Some of them have their individual kitchens. So they could take that sort of, you know, raw meat and cook it themselves. But if they're coming from a central facility, then they would be pre-cooked in advance and they'll come in and they'll just do the reheating. Mm. But to get the best flavor out of meat and stuff, it's best to have it cooked just before it's it's served. Yeah. Yeah. Fresh. <laughs> and uh, Ayana, that's just what Artie's just said about, you know, the tech changing the um, technical characteristics so that the respective uh, modified foods maintain their shape and flavor and texture that works I suppose that works really well with the work you're doing around 3d print 3d printing and uh, shaping so they're not just circular mounds they can be more attractively presented is is that right oh exactly we're exploring the 3d food printing option um, to see if we can actually if we're serving a let's say broccoli puree it, it doesn't look like a broccoli anymore. So we're exploring the opportunity to see if we can print uh, the puree in a broccoli form and hold its shape so that people that it's actually recognizable what you're eating. Same for meat, for example, if you could print it in the form of a steak or we print it in the form of an actual piece of chicken, then it looks, then you kind of anticipate a bit better what you're going to get. So it also, when you see something that, um, on the plate and it looks attractive and it's it, and you know what you're getting it also helps to create uh, saliva in your mouth and that again also helps you to form a bolus and swallow your food properly so it, it works on different ways um, so we what Artie said we eat also with our eyes it's really important and we feel the um, 3d printing of food could really play a good role in this by actually preparing um, texture modified foods a bit more um, closer to serving time as well um, also play into individual needs maybe there's like a whole range of opportunities in that area that we haven't even touched upon yet yeah no that's fascinating and it's not just you know the simulacra like when you travel to Korea or Japan and restaurants have their plastic molded foods in the window so you can visually identify I, I love it but you know it is uh, very particular but 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 what you're talking about there particularly for age for older people who may have dementia or alzheimer's you know there's a whole regime of literature and care there that you know um, visual sensory smell triggers that people remember and have positive associations with is so important and so your 3d work is really operating sounds like it could be really operating really powerfully on that level as well which is really beautiful 
Hmm. That's what we hope. And one thing as well is that we, we got the question from several aged care organizations that are actually hoping this technology will become available to them because they struggle with uh, inconsistent textures. So if we could use 3D printing um, as a way to really get um, the textures that people need and make sure that it's all safe to swallow, then we'll, we take that um, guessing game, I guess away from staff and kitchens. Hmm. Obviously, your research is very much focused on working with aged care centres and health services, I suppose, or I don't want to answer the question. <laughs> I was going to ask, um, who are the key partners or stakeholders who you're most focused on working with or who would most like to work with? Would you like to just paint a, a sort of a, an overview of who the key partners in industry, community, government uh, are that you are working with and perhaps would like to work with? Maybe I'll go and Yana, you can add a bit as well. So I think I think uh, from a government perspective, I think uh, just working with the uh, Department of Health and Aging and sort of looking at where they see the bigger picture and, uh, you know, um, and kind of foods they would like to see and um, maybe around funding as well. Like I said, aged care is a ridiculously price-sensitive uh, uh, industry when it comes to food there so I think what they can be served is sometimes limited so I think looking at that side working on government on that side but I think more so in the area that Yana and I work which is more science and developing products I think we would like to have better working relationship with HK Home so we were really quite lucky in this project that we worked with is that the Wesley Mission Queensland they sort of came on board with us and helped us run trials with the the residents in aged care homes so this will be like aged care homes that would be we would like to work with and also with their speech pathologists and the kitchen central kitchen people because they basically know what's needed and what would work so and then there will be on the other side would be companies like if you want to sell or sell this pre-made stuff then we really would like to work with some of the companies that are doing this asia product so there are australian-based companies from our market research, we found they're not deep of them. There are about seven of them that are sort of, you know, making products, either it's thickened fluids or the thickened liquids or foods that they are able to then sell into aged care and they buy them. So sort of working with them to sort of see how we could help them with the science that they are doing so they're delivering even better products and more nutritionally dense products and, and things like that. So those are the kind of people we're thinking. And then... Yana, maybe the dietitians as well, right? Yeah, so we've also throughout the project been in touch with uh, a few dietitians, uh, especially those working in aged care uh, again, um, because it's such a particular uh, population that we're looking at. So it needs very specialized knowledge. Working with dietitians to optimize the nutritional um, properties of the foods is very important to us as well. And I suppose speech pathologists play quite an important role when it comes to dyslexia patients because they are the one that actually diagnose them in the first place and then they are the ones who would then determine what kind of level of food they go in so like i said we've got this itsy guidelines mm. in which there are like five levels of food and five levels of fluid so once the speech pathologist sort of assess the, the the client then they would say they should be on this food and this fluid or whatever so they play quite an important role and there are these kitchen-based methods on testing the product. Is that thick enough? Like, you know, instead of using the side of a fork to kind of break some solid food or 
like some of the thickened stuff would be more on the spoon and does it fall off the spoon easily enough. So these are sort of some of the in-house methods that people that are preparing food can quickly check if that is the right texture of, or the right thickness so it comes to fluids and things like that. So speech pathologists play quite an important role in sort of setting these kind of guidelines for what the, the client should have so that it's safe for them, but also kind of help the people preparing the food or help set these kind of guidelines as to how you should test the food before you present it to the client as well. So I think they play quite a important role as well. Thank you for that. That is fascinating. You are focusing on people in aged care with very particular dysphagia conditions. But what about for everyday older people living at home who might occasionally struggle with dysphagia? Any tips or information that they can access or their families can access, or is that sort of in the future? Um, there, are, there are a few companies that uh, sell some products online. So people that, um, have, that still live at home and have dysphagia could uh, go online there. We do hear from most people that their spouses or them, uh, people themselves just go into the kitchen and use their hand blender to yeah, puree foods themselves, which is probably not optimal. So that's uh, some yeah that's a market that we that's a bit hard to really find how many people are we talking about and um, also which companies are interested in playing in that, stepping into that market. Hmm, but, but perhaps it's a part of the dissemination in terms of materials information to speech pathologists and doctors and and down the track obviously it's you can't do everything at once but at such because as you say like pureeing uh, can be quite chunky and you might choke on it and so knowing that is really good to know as even as a first principle yeah hmm. yeah and then one of our um, previous colleagues also worked in this space and she um, looked at uh, just really normal foods in the supermarket uh, and looked at their textures and seeing if they could fit with the the different levels in the itsy guidelines so some uh, yogurts and uh, soft cheeses uh, would yeah, are also very appropriate to use uh, for some people. But it all depends on what kind of texture is safe for you to swallow. What itsy level should you be taking? Can I add, there is, you know, we've heard that sometimes they, some of the ones that are living at home and have dysphagia would then go and buy baby food to have as well. And that's sort of, you know, like if you're looking for something off the shelf, then they, we, we have heard that, yeah, some of the disclosures of course would sometimes go and buy baby food and, and have that as well. So remember, we are talking about circle of life. You go from liquid to semi-solid to solid and sort of at the end of the life, you sort of, it reverts the other way, I suppose. You go from solids then into modified foods and puree and maybe at the end in liquid, right? So that's how you started. We have heard when we've done interviews and stuff that at times people have gone and got uh, baby food because they didn't have their food. Gosh, that's a whole other field of research in terms of flavour and marketing, isn't it? <laughs> Goodness me. Okay, that's such a rich conversation. Thank you. I just think what you're doing is so fabulous. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I can just, I have members of my family to whom this relates very directly, and I just uh, thank you for what you're doing. So tell me, where to from here, say, in the next 6 to 12 months or 3 years? Would you like to just sort of 
the near horizon, the not so near horizon, where to for the research? Well, I guess if I look at uh, 3D uh, printing of food, we're really exploring the social acceptability at the moment. This project uh, is running for the rest of this financial year in which we uh, hope to also disseminate findings on, for the industry and for ourselves on how to progress with um, yeah, responsible innovation in this um, sector. Yeah. And RT, uh, yeah, we were always keen to get some more collaborations going. We're actually been discussing with some other uh, research institutes, universities. Yes. Artie, any final further comments, wrap, wrap up? I think for me, it would be that the, the products that we've worked on, right? So, you know, the restructured steak and the work we've done with the, the peas and things like that. I think that we have been talking to quite a few companies about commercializing this and um, it just sort of getting that over the line. I think that's has been my frustration in some way or my challenge, I should say, is that because the, the amount is small, like, you know, if you ask a company to do it, well, um, they don't want to do 100 kilos, a couple of 100 kilos every month or something like that. So it just where is the value for them to make these type of products? And who would come to the party with us? It's great to have great science, but if that great science is not then of any use to somebody, then it's still just great science. So that is sort of getting people on board to kind of take the, the science that we worked on and the products that have been developed into some level of commercial. And I continue to talk to them. I continue to harass people in the existing competition. And then, like I said, in the computational modeling stuff, we've just hired or in the process of hiring a postdoc. So we're going to continue to build that. And the reason it's really quite important to have a computational model for the swallowing side is because these uh, people with dysphagia, we can't really do sensory tests with them. So in the sense that, you know, that even if they can sort of help us swallow the stuff, sometimes a lot of them don't have the cognitive function to give us feedback, whether that was sticky or that that was soft or you know whatever the kind of sensory characteristics we want to find out. So by having a model, we can do a lot of these simulation online when changing our products. So that sort of area is really quite important. So we've got someone starting and we'll have this person for the next three years in which we're going to sort of do that. And I think then coming back to the 3D printing work, which um, Jana was sort of talking about is, looking at how do we make these inks that go in, what role does the meat powder that we've done before, how does the meat powder or any of the plant powders that we are making, that how could they then become the ink for the printer? How do we print the food? So there's still a quite a bit of science side that is needed. People just say 3D printing, it's, it's not that easy. We need to have the, the ink. We also need to have the um, the hardware that would do the printing, but we also need the software that's going to run it to kind of print the kind of food we want. And I think if we can get that, I think that is where when we talk about personal personalized nutrition, that is where real personalized nutrition comes in because we say, all right, Anthea, today your nutritional needs are this and we're going to print your food. That's going to meet all your nutritional needs so we can put in the if you need more iron, more calcium, whatever, there is an opportunity uh, in that 3D printing to do something specifically for your needs. So it's sort of a holy grail, I suppose, a little bit, but we are hoping to get there. 
we are hoping to get there. And these are all the little steps of research we have to do to finally get there, right? We, we say that it will be like the microwaves, right? <laughs> Every home has it now. One day, who knows if you get this thing right. <laughs> Maybe not in everyone's home, but every age care might have one. Yeah. So customised nutrition and the protein powders literally being the inks. Do, do I understand you correctly? The colour, the, the inks. Fabulous. Yeah, it could be. It could be. Or the powders of other stuff like the broccoli waste could be made into a powder or carrot waste and, you know, those things can be made into a powder. So we're looking at, you know, waste utilisation as well, the circular economy side of things. So the carrots that are not the right shape or size can be used to make into inks of some sort that can be a feed ingredient for a 3D printer. And that amazing social research around the acceptability and dissemination of the 3D that Jana yes, mentioned. So exactly. thank you both so much for speaking with me. I think we've covered an enormous amount and we could talk about it a whole lot more, I'm sure. Any, any final comments, thank yous, call outs or, or done? <laughs> no, after hearing this, if people are interested, contact us in CSRO. We would love to work with you and keep getting this research forward. I've been speaking with Dr. Artie Tobin and Dr. Jana Bielan, who are both key researchers from CSIRO's food and nutrition research teams, and they're doing such fabulous, wonderful work. I can't wait to see it go from strength to strength. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thanks for listening. To listen to more episodes of Nourishing Matters to Chew On, head to Foodswell's podcast page at foodswell.org.au backslash nourishing or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and stay in touch via instagram at nourishing underscore matters and on facebook at nourishing matters to chew on if you like what you hear and would like to support us give us a rating and a review in your favorite podcast app so other people can find us too 